looks like you all hated me so much that you've given me this award for it. That it can be about the performance and not the politics. This moment is so much bigger than me. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. And thank all of you who voted for me and all of you who didn't. Please excuse me. I deserve this. Thank you. And welcome back to this week's episode of Academy Queens. I am a wanton sex goddess with a very bad man in between her thighs, Joey Gentile. And I'm a fantasy piece of ass, Brandon Stanwyck. And this is Academy Queens, your LGBT guy, through the Academy Awards per decade, per category. And we have reached the class of 2001. Brandon! What's up? What's new? Tell me all about what you've been up to. Um, well, I found out that I'm so good at the job that I've only been doing for five months that they're sending me to another store to get them in shape. Uh, this was a shock to me. I thought I was simply just doing my job, but apparently I'm doing it extraordinarily. And uh, they're sending me off to, uh, to whip some people into shape. And with that, I say two claps to Brandon. Congratulations. That's exciting. Yeah, so I do that um, end of January into early February. Very nice. Very, very nice. I literally just about an hour ago got back into town. I was in Philadelphia for my comedy show. And if you are going to whip up anything into shape, um, I need you to go to Philadelphia because they have a couple of issues with their stores. Probably the grossest stores ever I've ever been in. I wanted to take a Silkwood shower, leaving them, and therefore uh, Philadelphia needs the assistance of Brandon Stanley. Oh boy. I wonder if we have any listeners from Philly. Philly, couple things for you guys. If I Actually, we do have Pennsylvania, so I'm going to guess maybe some of those in. First of all, Pennsylvania, some of the worst drivers I've ever been around in my life. I used to live in L.A. L.A. is notorious for their drivers. Pennsylvania... People in PA would rather see you die than try to merge on the highway. Philadelphia, what the fuck is with cars parking in the middle of the road? Literally, in the middle of the road are parking spots for these cars. But the thing is, is that it's not even like parking spot parking spots. It's just these cars just decided one day, I guess, to park in the middle of the road. Also, too, two-hour parking in the most busiest part of town, and every two hours you have to try to find a spot. It was like Manhattan. It was ridiculous. That's my biggest gripe about Philadelphia, but it's a beautiful city outside of that. All right. And rant is over. (laughs) Listen, I'm on a high right now. I had a really, really good show last night. I got more gigs coming up. I'm just, I'm booked a lot, and we're only in the first week still of 2020. Like, I'm on a really good comedy streak right now, so like I said, and I just got home an hour ago, so I'm still on my, like, comedy high. So it's going to be a real exciting show. That's great. Yes, but it's also really exciting because we also have another guest today. Right. Not only is it another guest, but it's our first international guest as well. Ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, welcome to the show from Chris and the Oscars Blogspot, an amazing, amazing blog that covers everything Academy Awards, all the way from Deutschland, Brit. Thanks a lot, Servus, and hello from Germany. So, yeah, to say it with the word of Eurovision Song Contest. Um, yeah, hello you two. I'm very honored that you have me on. I've been really looking forward to this. I'm a little bit nervous and a little bit excited, but um, totally happy to be here. 
If I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm told very often that I'm speaking way too fast in English, so if that happens, just let me know. I do Listen. the same thing. <laughs> yeah, you're totally good. There's no okay. issues whatsoever. Our audience, let's get them to uh, get to know you a little bit. First of all, tell us all about your blog. Tell, tell everybody. Um, yeah, so it's mostly, um, obviously, best actress focused. I think that's probably a gay thing. Um, <laughs> I started, I think, ages ago, I think over 10 years ago, and when I started reviewing the best actress nominees and ranked them, I have to admit I've gotten rather lazy, so it's not the most regular blog at the moment, so I'm doing a lot on Twitter. But I try, still try to do my best actress ranking, which I hope to have finished by the year 2090 or something like this. Um, and write uh, reviews from time to time, but I'm really... So, for Best Actress, you can ask me anything. I think I'm pretty deep into that topic, yeah. So, this is our second episode we're recording of Season 4. Now, as of this recording, you haven't heard who Brandon and myself and our guest picked for 2000. But really quick, want to know, who was your Best Supporting Actress and Best Lead Actress of the year 2000? 2000? Um, that would have been the Aaron Brockovich year. Yeah, I probably need to rewatch them, but I suppose I would actually stick to with the Oscar winners. Marsha Gay Harden and Marsha Gay Harden and Julia Roberts, yeah. I know um I'm supposed to love Ellen Burstyn and I, I it's been so long since I've seen her and I really liked her. But I think overall I'm more keen to what uh, Julia Roberts did. I think that's uh, I think that's a pretty great movie star performance that it's very easy to underrate. And I, I really like her in this movie. And for supporting actress, I think Marsha Gay Harden is pretty, pretty killer in, in Pollock. Well, just off of that, you would have been a great guest for last week. And uh, when you finally hear it, you'll have to let us know your thoughts on who we chose. So. Okay, yeah, very much looking forward to that. <laughs> yes, well, let's dive right in because this is a pretty historic year. Normally what I do before the shows now, too, is I give one fun fact about the Academy Awards. From the book The Academy Awards for Complete Unofficial History by Jim Piazza and Gail Kinner. However, all three facts here were a first, and I'm going to mention all three because they're all pretty big. Starting with, this was the Kodak Theater's debut as the Oscars' new home, which the Kodak is now known as the Dolby. This was the Academy Awards' first Hollywood locale since 1959's presentation at the uh, Pentage, or Pentages Theater. So that's number one. The other two facts. Halle Berry was honored as the first African-American woman to win Best Actress, who is also a Cleveland native. And Denzel Washington was, in fact, the first African-American man to win Best Actor. His predecessor, Sidney Poitier, was of Jamaican heritage. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Because the person who said that, I was like, wait a minute. And then right. you, you clarified it with the Jamaican thing, and okay, I guess I never knew that. Right, right. I would also like to point out, which is not in this book, this was a very first ever um, where the lead actor, the lead actress, first of all, were uh, winners of color, um, and Sidney Poitier was the honorary Oscar winner when they still did the honorary awards at the shows, which they fucking need to bring back, in my opinion. So it was at a time when it has been the only time for all three actors in the leads there and the honorary to be black and it is it was a great symbol of what should have happened more often but it's also a little bittersweet because we haven't seen it since and it's been 19 years right so while very historic also very bittersweet mm -hmm. with that said gentlemen shall we dive right in let's do this all right 
your supporting actress nominees of 2001 were Jennifer Connelly with a beautiful mind. Okay, let's start with the winner. We have Jennifer Connelly as Alicia Nash in A Beautiful Mind. This is her sole nomination going into Oscar night. Little interesting on her precursors here. So we have wins from BAFTA and the Golden Globes in supporting and Critics' Choice for supporting. However, SAG flipped that shit and was like, "Uh uh-uh, you're a lead actress. But she didn't win there. She was only nominated. In A Beautiful Mind, again, Jennifer Connelly plays Alicia, who is the wife to the Russell Crowe character, who is along for the for the journey of who this man is, this brilliant mathematician, and who really holds him up to the standard that he needs to be while also mentally crumbling under what is happening around her. So, Fritz, because you are our guest of honor, why don't you start us off with what you think about uh, Jennifer Connelly in this film? Happy to. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah, Jennifer Connelly in a beautiful mind. So, uh, first of all, I want to say that what I find most fascinating about uh, her awards run that year is actually her BAFTA win, which she won against Hal Mirren, Maggie Smith, Kate Winslet, and Judy Dench. So I think that's, um, for, for an American actress, that's, that's a pretty tough field to beat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from an Oscar perspective, I think she makes the most sense of, as an Oscar winner. She's the suffering wife. She has um, the screen time. Um, personally, I don't mind her supporting placement. I think... Uh, yeah, she has the screen time, she has the importance in the part, but I think her character is not really so developed. So I think I'm fine with the supporting placement. Overall, I mean, I don't want to give too much away for my ranking later, but I think I'm rather torn on this performance. So I think at the beginning, she doesn't really grab me the way she should. I think at the beginning, she should be this very lively, charming presence who gets this man out of her shelf. And I think she's too sharp and focused on actress to really sell that. I think it's nice that she has the sharp personality because it makes her character a little less stock and a little less cliche. But I think she's missing a certain something at the beginning. And I think because the movie around her constantly feels so important, I think this also affects her performance in some part, especially at the beginning. But you have the feeling that every sentence she says, she wants to add some gravitas and to add some deeper meaning even if it's really just them having a date or being out there so um, I think the beginning is not really what I really would expect at this I think she has some nice moments I think the way she reacts um, to uh, at her I think when it's her birthday and he comes late and he gives her this little uh, I don't know what it's called this little stone with all the colors inside I think she's very charming in this scene and, and this works really well but I think a lot of the time she's really reduced to reacting. I think, for example, the scene when he tells her that he only wants to have intercourse with her, I mean, it's nice that she reacts in an unexpected way, but she's a little pale in this moment, and you never really get a sense of what she is feeling in these in these moments. So she's, she's always very reduced to reacting. But I think she gets much 
better in the second half of the movie when she becomes more the suffering wife. I mean, of course, it's a cliched character, but I think she really... I mean, she's a great crier. She can scream. She has her... Um, you want to know what's real scenes? So she, ha she has a lot of big scenes, so I think they really... Um, this really works in her favor. But even then, I th sometimes think um, that she's a little bit too hesitant in her work. I mean, when she tells the doctor this is ridiculous when he tells her that... Uh, um, Oh God, what's his name? What's Russell Crowe's character's name? John. <laughs> that, yes. he is, that he's suffering from schizophrenia. I'm, somehow, I, I don't really feel that she really has the, she has the way of saying things like, oh my God, or stuff like this. This sounds, sounds rather bored, and I don't really get that she really feels this in this moment. And I think it's also, unfortunately, when she has this one scene, when she's talking to a friend, and she basically tells him, that she forces herself to see John the way he used to be. I mean, this, I think this is such a big moment for her character because this really tells for the first time how she really feels, that she really is not happy, that she has more feels more like an obligation to stay with him. And, she, and it's, for her, it's such a throwaway line. She really doesn't sell this. It's, this moment comes and goes. Um, she has later another couple of other nice moments. I mean, when she's throwing the glass in the mirror, when she's saving her baby, I and mean, these are also big moments. She really sells them, and she's really good in those. Um, even if, again, she sometimes feels a little bit too important when she opens a car door, when she opens the door to this um, uh, this hut outside, the way she moves so slowly, this, this really to show, oh, look, I'm doing something important here. Um, yeah, but I think overall, I, I like her, and I think some flaws in her performance, especially at the beginning, but I think overall I like her and I think, as I said, I think she makes most sense as an Oscar winner, even if I don't want to give away too much now, but even so, I might not agree yet. yet. Wow. Welcome to the fucking show. That was brilliant. I love you already. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was you. amazing. Uh, Brandon, good luck following that. Yeah, I don't know how. Um, so... <laughs> I'll start with the, the category. Um, I also don't really mind her in supporting. Um, upon rewatching this, uh, she's really writing the line here. I see why people say she's more a lead, but I really don't mind that she's in supporting. If you think about this movie uh, divided up into quarters, she's not even in the first quarter of the movie. It's roughly half an hour in when she enters. And for that second quarter of the film, she's really secondary, very much on the periphery of the story uh, to Russell Crowe. She's basically just like the love interest. And it's about halfway through when he starts having his uh, mental breakdowns and he's being examined and committed that she really takes the steering wheel for a while and she's really driving the story. So I think that's where the category confusion comes in. Because for that 60-minute um, mark to like 90-minute mark, she's really in control of the narrative. And then um, in the last quarter of the film, when he's released from the hospital and he's trying to get his life back together, it evens out again. Um, so looking at the movie as a whole, I'm okay with her in supporting, but I definitely see the argument otherwise. Um, I agree with Fritz. I think uh, in the first half of this film, this character is pretty underwritten, and I think Jennifer Connelly struggles against that. Um, it doesn't really give her all that many opportunities until the second half, like when... Um, John Nash has left their infant daughter in the bathtub as the water's filling up, and um, if she had gotten there any later, their daughter probably would have drowned. And I really find her 
reaction to that moment very compelling, um, especially later on when she's trying to escape and uh, John is seeing um, the um, Ed Harris character and he's reacting to that. And you really see the sense of terror in her eyes where she doesn't know if her husband might even try to kill her in this moment. Like his sense of paranoia has gone so far that she truly has no idea what he's capable of. And so I think she really shines in those moments. Um, but o- overall, as a whole, I think the movie often reduces her to being just um, the love interest, um, especially in the very beginning and even at the end after things even out and uh, it uh, refocuses on John. Um, but overall, I think it's a perfectly okay performance. Um, I don't really have all that much negative to say that wouldn't just um, go back to the movie itself not really respecting her all the way through. But overall, I think it's a perfectly all right performance. I, like in 1999 with Chloe Sevigny, have this thing about the acting school of Jennifer Connelly because I don't think that she, she isn't like any other actress like Sevigny um, that's out there. I mean, if you look at her early performances in things like Labyrinth, even, there's this weird almost theater-like acting that she's bringing to the camera. And then Requiem for a Dream, even like with last week, you look at that performance, and she is a clear-cut New York actress. I know we talked about that last week. And here it is again. And it's almost like her acting comes from a whole different time, like a whole different period in time. Like It reminds me a lot of the actresses in the 40s. That big brass boldness. It, it's it's actually very reminiscent of Joan Crawford and Mildred Pierce, in my opinion. And I love that it, it, it doesn't fit the time period. This included, for A Beautiful Mind, being that time period piece. Like, it doesn't fit there, and it's so fascinating to watch. I ask myself, because we all know how I am at this point about category, where does she belong? Because I don't even know. Um, are we so numb to the quote-unquote, and I don't want to reduce the role to this, but I'm going to have an example or two here to back it up, but the wife role. You know, we look at, like, Felicity Jones in The Fear of Everything. That could be played in either category. Then we look at, like, Alicia Vikander, who won in the supporting category as the wife role, but that's a, a lead. But then I think of, like, the size of Jennifer Connelly's role, and I'm like, you know who it reminds me of? Karen Blacks in Five Easy Pieces. And I know when we started this po- or this podcast, I had made that first kind of the argument for Karen Black and why she should be in lead. And you said something, Brandon, that just because she's the only or she's the main woman doesn't mean that she has to be the lead woman. And I think that rule kind of goes here for Connolly, if that makes any sense as well. But then I go back to, again, are we so numb to where the category should play for this guy? I got it. Now, focusing on this, her biggest asset for this film is her reaction. It's not so much her line delivery. It's her facial. It's the I have to believe. It's the looking of the stars. It's the reaction of her finding the, the photographs in, in the, in the garage. It's to grabbing her child out of out of the tub, and it's to the very end where she's so proud of him. At uh, what is he receiving, like the Nobel Prize or whatever? Um, that's her strength. It's not her line delivery here. So I don't know. 
I'm all over the place with it. I definitely don't hate this performance, and I definitely don't love this performance. I am, like, very okay with everything here. So, I don't know. I just I just want to say um, I totally agree with you on the um, that she seems to come from a different time. So I think that was a perfect example. I think I really see her more as uh, this femme fatale style of actress. I think I see her as an actress who can very easily play unlikable characters, which is probably why she doesn't have the career you would expect after an Oscar win. But I think this personality doesn't really fit this kind of loyal, trusting, charming young girl who becomes the supportive wife, and I think that's for me is a little bit the problem, and I think that's why also, I think that, for example, I think her acting style never really changes between these two extremes. I think she, in some ways, the way when she says to him, maybe it will be better tomorrow, she somehow delivers these lines in the same way she delivers her her loving lines at the beginning, and I think that's for me, this is the problem that she doesn't really totally seem to fit in the movie, which I think sometimes can work for a performer when they stick out in an unusual way, but I think not in this kind of conventional movie that A Beautiful Mind is. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think uh, the movie's a little bit too uh, straightforward in order for her, for her um, differences to really shine in a way. I can see what you're saying, how uh, because the movie is so conventional in its execution and it's not really stylized in any way, that the things that make her different from the other performers um, do sort of make her stand out in a way that doesn't entirely work. Well, if nobody has anything to ask for Connolly, we'll hop over the pond and head to Gosford Park. Starting with Helen Mirren as Mrs. Wilson uh, in Gosford Park. This is her second of four nominations Oh, wait. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is her second of four, having previously been nominated for The Madness of King George in 1994. Um, going into Oscar night, she is a force to kind of be reckoned with here. Um, she had a Golden Globe and a BAFTA nomination for supporting. She and an LA Film Critics Association nomination. But she wins the New York Film Critics Association, the SAG win, and the National Society of Film Critics for supporting. And in Gosford Park, again, Mirren plays Mrs. Wilson who is kind of the head bitch in charge when it comes to the workers in this gigantic mansion. I would also like to point out that this is a huge ensemble piece, and it is directed by no, none other than Robert Altman. It's one of his last films. Um, and she is... It, the, the film is about this murder mystery that happens with a bunch of um, uppity English socialites, and um, she plays, again, kind of like the head... Um, I don't know if I want to say maid, but she's in charge of all, you know, making making sure everything runs smoothly. And she's hiding a super deadly deadly secret in a way um, that could really hurt her position where she's at. So, uh, Brandon, why don't you start off with uh, us on Helen Mirren? So I really admire this performance. I'm also just a fan of this movie. I love that Robert Altman made this film. And, I mean, who better than to handle this huge cast? Than Robert Altman, who basically made his trademark these vast tapestries, a la uh, Nashville and Shortcuts and whatnot. Um, Helen Mirren gives a very interesting performance here because um, being the head of household in this giant. Well, I don't know if that's the right title. I just made that up. Um, she, she has a very. She's in a very interesting position where she sort of needs to reflect the house. The house needs to be pristine and in perfect order, and there should be no flaws. 
and it must be completely presentable at all times. And that's kind of the position that she's in as a person. She has to be perfect herself in order to be successful in her role. And um, it really juxtaposes nicely in the end when she has her uh, big emotional breakdown, for lack of a better word, which I, I find to be just absolutely marvelous. Um, she doesn't have a whole lot of screen time when you really add up her minutes. I think she's maybe in, what, 10 or 12 minutes of this movie? I'm not sure, because there's so many moving parts in this film and so many actors. But um, when she finally, in the end, reveals the big reveal um, and completely unwinds, and we see an, an entirely different side of her that I don't think anyone has seen in perhaps years, especially the people that she works with and works for, um, Helen Mirren really, uh, really sells that moment, and I think she's just great in it. Totally agree with you. I also love her in this movie. Um, I want to say I fucking love Gosford Park. Um, I think um, 2001 had such a great Best Picture lineup with four really great movies, and then of, then of course they go with A Beautiful Mind. Um, but maybe that's just me, but um, I'm not too happy about it, but I think Gosford Park is really amazing, and I could really fill this entire category with Gosford Park. So just a short... Um, just, um, a few words on other actresses I love from this movie. I love Kristen Scott Thomas in this movie. I use her lines, um, the ones we hate last forever, and I suppose life must go on all the time. Um, I love Claudia Blakey, I think her name is. She's really underrated. Um, I recently tweeted that she wasn't even nomin she wasn't even part of the SAG Ensemble Award. She plays Mabel, and I think she's really great in this movie. I also love Emily Watson, so with, together with uh, Helen Mirren and Maggie Smith, I think you can fill this entire category with Gosford Park. But I see why Helen Mirren was singled out so strongly for awards. It's really a great performance. She's really, she really is the definition of a supporting role that is also very relevant to the movie. I mean, her character influences the whole storyline, but as you said, she's probably in the movie for like 10 or 12 minutes. But I think what really helps her is that Helen Mirren, obviously, with her experience uh, of playing all these different queens, she has a very royal screen presence, and even when she plays a servant, you really just sense her importance and you sense her position. I just googled, I think her position is called head housekeeper, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, and you really sense that she really rules downstairs and that what she, that her words are law down there. And you really get this feeling that she is this perfect servant that she's later talking about and that she is the kind of woman who thinks about strawberry marmalade in the middle of the night and who really organizes everything perfectly. And she really establishes that in really just a few short scenes at the beginning, which I think is very tricky and very difficult, and she really solves that. Um, the emotional part, I don't think that she really hides her secret. I think it's very obvious in Gosford Park what is really going on, who did it, and what her big secret is. I think when she has the scene with Clive Owen, I think she really shows it on her face. But I think that's okay, because I think for a character like hers... Um, to be confronted with this, I think this is probably such an unusual situation for her that I think she's allowed to react in an unusual way for her. And as you said, I mean, the, the emotional moment at the beginning, I mean, it's just a small breakdown. It doesn't last very long, but it has a very big impact because it's really the only really big emotional moment in the movie and it comes from such an unexpected character that really... Is, so suddenly you really see a character in a really different light, so, so she really benefits from having the final scenes of the movie really to herself, and she really sells that. Great performance. So, here we go. I'm going to be the odd man out. Um, I hate this movie so much. I 
when it comes to Robert Altman, which we've talked about a couple of times, we've talked about MASH and McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Nashville. I love Nashville. I think Nashville is one of the greatest American films ever made. And Nashville is really the only Robert Altman film that I actually enjoy watching. This is no different for me from not enjoying his movies. If I, if I want to see like a murder mystery whodunit, I want something in the vein of Knives Out. I think that's great. I think it's a lot of fun. It's entertaining. There's a lot going on. This movie to me is painfully dull. Um, I don't care who did it because none of these characters are worth knowing. I think it's just, I don't like how it's written. And, and, and therefore, the way it's written to the characters, I just don't give a shit. Um, Mirren, I find to be very one note. There is nothing special that she's giving me outside of Bitchy Housekeeper. While, yes, she's great in the final few minutes, is it really award-worthy to be, like, picking up these awards and then to get nominated, especially a SAG award? Like, I don't really know. I, I mean, I'm going to honestly probably say no. Um, there's nothing going with her, the development of what she's bringing to it, because uh, there's no emotion. She's just very like, oh, I got to be a bitch and run things. Okay, cool. It, I mean, it gets old very fast. Um, when she does have that breakdown, I she's vulnerable, yes, to the audience, but it's not like at that point, I just want the movie to be over because I just hate this movie so much. It doesn't do anything for me. Um, I don't understand this film and why it was so, especially at that time, welcomed. I, I don't know. I think it's a... I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. I wouldn't call her performance one note. I think it may appear that way at times because she, by her position, has to maintain a certain stability. And so the way she presents herself might give off the impression of being one note, but I think there's a lot going on under the surface that she sometimes tries to mask, and like Fritz was saying, sometimes it comes out if you know what you're looking for. But I wouldn't call it one note, especially considering um, how this movie ends and the impression that Helen Mirren leaves on the audience when the credits start to roll. So... um I think it's a pretty great performance from Mirren. I'm also just a fan of this movie. This movie just really works for me. Um, I kind of like that the whole murder mystery aspect is almost incidental in a way. Altman kind of did a similar thing with Shortcuts, which at its heart is a bit of a mystery that none of the characters are all that interested in solving and many don't even realize it's happening. So this is kind of a thing that Altman has sort of used before. Um, and plus, it's a really interesting uh, movie to watch, considering Julian Fellows would go on to do Downton Abbey. And you can see a lot of the little early Downton Abbey-isms in this film. So I'm just a fan of this movie, and maybe that helps me like Helen Mirren's performance. But um, that's where I stand on it. Yeah, also, I think maybe probably the way you react to these performances is probably how you like the movie. So I am a big Agatha Christie fan, and I really like these kind of English movies that are in these very English settings where everybody has this very English accent, so I could watch these people all day. And I also think, I personally think it's a very three-dimensional performance, so it just shows how everybody reacts differently. But I think the way she... Uh, as Brandon said, the way she has to present herself downstairs, she has to rule over all these people, then she has to fight against um, her cook, the cook, who's also her sister, about the authority they have over the different girls. Then she has, uh, she's probably also 
the one that the people from upstairs are talking to the most. So she really is a um, link between these two worlds. And I think in this she really has this very specific role that she needs to inhabit. And I think you sense from her work that she has inhabited this for years and has just perfected it. Yeah, but I think it's really just uh, down how you react to the movie. And about her Sekwin, we really shouldn't forget how fucked up that category was at the Zack Awards. I think Helen Mirren was the only Oscar nominee in, uh, that Zack awarded or uh, nominated as well, when you think about how they moved Jennifer Connelly up to lead. Yeah, that that Zack Award was very, very intriguing the, for those nominations. Um, I want to move though right into Maggie Smith, because we're on the topic of Bastard Park, playing Constance um, Trinum. This is her sixth of six nominations, and her most recent, which is very odd to me. Um, going into Oscar night, she only had nominations from the Golden Globes, the BAFTA, the National Society of Film Critics, and the New York Film Critics Association in supporting. Excuse me. Um, in Gossip Park, Maggie Smith is this New York, or I'm sorry, English socialite who is so above everybody else and could not be bothered to lift a finger to light a cigarette and truly just wants to kind of have a party in a weird way, uh, but totally by herself. Um, so, uh, Chris, why don't you start us with Maggie Smith and Gossip Park? Mm, yeah, um, the funny thing is, I think when you talk to people about Gospel Park, I think most will probably say, the first thing that people will say is Maggie Smith. I think she has the benefit that her personality fits this character so well. And obviously, the movie gives her the VIP treatment. I mean, the movie opens with her getting into her car and getting to this um, big mansion. There's basically no reason for her to get this big entrance. But she really is the... She's not the central character, but she's the character you probably think about the most because she has all these funny one-liners. And of course, the role fits her like a glove. I think it's unfair to say that she plays herself or that she has played this role for the rest of her career because personally I think that her Violet in Downton Abbey is still different from this character. I think her Violet is more straightforward and self-assured because she has this very strong position while her Constance you sense a little bit of desperation in her because she has these financial troubles and is dependent on this um, uh, the guy who runs the house. So you, you get this, and she also has this very good chemistry with Kelly MacDonald, who plays her servant. And But of course, uh, in the end, she's really there to provide the humor. And of course, her being Maggie Smith, she does this marvelously. Um, she can. There's so many funny mo- moments about her, even just um, when she's not able to open her... her uh, what's the word? No, no, I don't know the English word... Um, uh, the thermokanne. I say it in yeah, I say it in German. The thermokanne to get a, to get a coffee out at the beginning, or when she's trying to avoid to Ivan Novello because you know he's just a movie star, or when she's later very bitchy to him. I mean, she has these all these one-liners. I haven't a snobbish bone in my body. Please don't encourage him when the others applaud for Ivan Novello singing. So she really has these great moments. I think in a way she interrupts the movie because she's not really part of the flow or really part of the bigger plot, but she always does it in a positive way. So, um, yeah, just like uh, Helen Mirren, I really don't have a negative thing, thing to say about her. Yeah, I don't really have anything negative to say about Maggie Smith either in this. Um, I think she's delightful. Maggie Smith seems to be having a ball doing this movie and playing this character. Uh, she's hilarious and effervescent and 
I, like Fritz was uh, implying, she is kind of the, the first character that I think of when I think of this movie because she has such a large personality and it really shines all the way through and there's so much humor in her character. Um, I do think that even though it is similar in a lot of aspects to her uh, Countess character from Downton Abbey that she would you know go on to play for many years, I do think these characters are a bit different. Um, her character in Gosford Park seems to be much more self-aware and a little bit more in tune with uh, what's going on around her. And so it's a different style of humor here. Uh, she's much more direct in this one, I would say. Um, I think she's hilarious. And yeah, I think she fits this role perfectly. Um, I don't know if typecast is the right word, but this is definitely the type of performance that we are accustomed to seeing Maggie Smith doing these days. Um, I find it similar in some ways to her Travels with My Aunt character. Um, in the sort of humor of it all. But, um, yeah, I think this is a really nice outing for Maggie Smith. That's funny that you brought up Charles with my aunt. Keep that as a side note for a second. Um, I love this role so much, and I love Maggie Smith in this role. For how much I detest this film, this is the highlight of Gossip Park for me, is Maggie Smith in this movie. Um, Maggie Smith is really good at comedy. She's won an Oscar for a comedy. Um, she has been nominated in a really good role for a comedy, aka Travels with My Aunt. Um, I know that, that uh, Travels with My Aunt is kind of known as her least impressive nomination, but I don't see that to be the case. I think it's a great intro to her comedic chops. This is no different. Um, this is wonderful. This is everything that I kind of want to be when I'm an old lady. Um, this is, uh, just don't fuck with me, boys. I'm going to do my own thing. And I want more of it. If the whole movie could have been about this character, I would have eaten it up and sopped it up with a biscuit. Um, I think what Smith is doing here is delightful. I think it's hilarious. It makes me want more of her. And it, it, and it just shows, for me, with every line delivery, with every ounce of visual acting, it, it makes it reminds me of why I love Maggie Smith. And therefore, I have to say, bravo to Smith. Um, I also would like to point out, because of Maggie Smith's nomination here, um, it also gave me one of my favorite jokes at the Oscars of all time, uh, because Will Smith was nominated for Ali in lead this year, and... Jada Pinkett Smith was at the Oscars there as well. And Whoopi Goldberg was hosting. And Jada, Will, and Maggie were all seated together in the same row. And Whoopi said, and look, the Smith family is all together. And it, if Maggie had not been nominated here, we would have never gotten that wonderful moment from the Academy Awards. So thank you, Maggie Smith, for making this movie any worthwhile today. Definitely agree with you that I would watch a whole movie about her. So now that you said it, I would like, kind of would like to see a sequel that just with Maggie Smith and Kelly McDonald traveling the world. Yes. And side note, we've got a couple of questions that have to deal with Gosford Park. So we're going to, we're going to sidetrack a little bit here and, and do the questions from Catherine Short. If you could only cast American actresses in the roles inhabited by Smith and Mirren in Gosford Park, who would you take, choose to take on the roles? Um, Super fucking easy. I would put Madeline Kahn in the Maggie Smith role and Karen Black in the Halloween role. 
I know that's super cliche of me to say by now, but come on. I mean, those two would be perfect here for this. Um, well, so when I asked myself the question, I said it in the time period that Gospel Park was made. So um, I could see Joan Allen as um, Mrs. Wilson. I think she could uh, bring also bring this uh, the stoic stoic quality to this role, and I could see Annette Bening as Constance. Oh, that's so good. Um, the first person I thought of for Mrs. Wilson, the Helen Mirren part, is Cherry Jones. I'm not sure why she was the first one that came into my head, and for some reason, for the Maggie Smith part, I thought of Catherine O'Hara. Oh, that's great. Not, not one of these choices were bad choices, by the way. There wasn't one there that I was like, no, I couldn't see it. I could see all of them. So, moving on. We have Marissa Tomei as Natalie Strauss uh, in In the Bedroom. This is her second of three nominations. Going into Oscar night, she only had nominations from the Golden Globe, the Critics' Choice, and the National Society of Film Critics in supporting. In In the Bedroom, again, Marissa plays Natalie, um, who is the love interest to Nick Stahl's character, who is a single mom in her early 30s in Maine, whose uh, ex-husband uh, gets into some trouble by murdering um, the Nick Stahl character. And it all the film centers around their relationship. So in a way, um, the parents in a way blame Marissa Tomei's character, and Marissa Tomei blames herself. And it's about her character trying to find redemption and forgiveness for not only herself but from the others. Um, so Brandon, what do you think about Marissa Tomei as Natalie in in the bedroom? This is a pretty uh, painful role, I would say. Um, she spends so much of this movie just in turmoil um before nick Stahl's character is murdered you know she's dealing with her ex-husband and her ex tormenting her and her new boyfriend and her new boyfriend's family um barging in on their barbecue and so on and then you know of course after her boyfriend is killed by her ex you know she just spends pretty much the rest of the movie just um completely devastated and not sure what to do with her life and trying to sort of make amends with the family, even though she's not exactly responsible, but she feels as though she is because she brought him into that world. And that's what ended up being um, the death of him. So it's a very painful performance. And I think Marissa Tomei pulls it off pretty well. Um, I find it pretty believable. Um, and I'm also just glad that she was able to get this second nomination, you know, to prove that the whole... My Cousin, if anything, wasn't a quote-unquote fluke, like a lot of people say. Um, so yeah, I'm glad that she gets this nomination, and I don't really have all that much negative to say. Um, I think it's a pretty nice outing. I think she does exactly what she needs to do in order to support this movie and add to the um, drama of it all and the heartache that's really at the core of this film. Um, first of all, amen to what you just said. That is so great that she got this nomination. I mean, it's, I think it wasn't 100% sure that she would get it. And it's so great, yeah, as you said, that she could co overcome this Oscar curse and, be and become really one of the great supporting actresses we have. Um, and yes, and I would just want to say I love Marisa Tomei in the bedroom. I think this is such a great performance. She, she's such a great comedian. Uh, my cousin Vinny, this was such a great performance but very stylized in the sense that it fitted into this comedy and she is so natural and so real and so believable in this movie this it's, it 
it's just difficult for me to talk about this performance because I don't think there really are any highlights, but it's such a well, such a grounded and realized 360 um, dimensional performance. And I just love how she shows this, how tense Natalie constantly is, how unsure of herself in the first scene when she's talking to Sissy Spacek. I think both do wonderful work in that scene when Sissy Spacek is polite but not too polite and you see how Natalie tries to suck up to her but she's not really able to because she's just intimidated by her and I loved how when she asks how she learned about this this style of music that she teaches and she says how do you learn about this and then she makes a little pause before she says style and I just sense that she wants to say stuff but she catches herself and doesn't say it and I, yeah, I just love how she constantly sees herself the way Sissy Spacek sees her as an outsider and that she doesn't really have the right to be in this relationship and how much it, how much she fears that she also affects um, the son of them. So when they talk at night and he tells her that he, he thinks about leaving college, you sense how sad she is and how concerned for him and how torn she is. And of course, later when the tragedy strikes, she's just heartbreaking. So... Um, all the guilt um, the, when she talks to Tom Wilkinson's character and later when she wants to apologize to Sissy Spacek's characters really breaks my heart in this movie. It's a shame that she just disappears from it, but I think that's her fate um, as the supporting character and that the movie loses interest in her. But um, I think the, in a way this character is really just um, there to set up the whole tragedy, but um, she does a great job and leaves really a very strong impression. Yeah, I'm going to echo everything you guys just said, but I'm going to start this with, and there's a reason I'm saying it this way, Marissa Tomei in this movie reminds me of a dog. And what I mean by that is that we've all been around or had dogs that wanted nothing but love and comfort and to just feel safe. And that's what I mean by that statement, is because that's all Natalie wants in this movie. She's such a broken woman. From the moment we meet her, even in her quote-unquote happy scenes with the Nick Stahl character, there's this sadness about her. And I want to give her a hug, and I want to tell her everything's okay. And to get a Oscar-winning performance from Marissa Tomei and My Cousin Vinny, to, which is, again, a complete 180-style performance that we're getting here, proves that she can do every genre in it, it right there. Um, I think this is brilliant. I think this is like one of the most emotionally effective or probably the most emotionally effective performance in these five nominees here in this category because God, does she take you on a ride? Um, and I, I, I kind of I didn't really think about this until you mentioned this, but she does really just disappear from this movie. And it is her fate as that character. Um, because in the end, it she may have, quote-unquote, caused this to happen, but she can't do anything to fix it, therefore why she needed it anymore. And that, I think that's really powerful. And I think, uh, hats off. Hats off. It's really good. If you were to ask me to pick what her moment is, I don't know what scene I would choose, because she has such a believable, natural build throughout this movie and she is so good in all of her scenes, regardless of what her emotional state is. So when Frank is still alive, and she is so unbelievably happy, because it's such a 180 from the relationship she was previously in with her ex, 
she's wonderful in those scenes too, even though it's not necessarily like powerhouse Oscar acting. She has a, a real believability to her, like what Fritz was saying in that scene with uh, her and Sissy Spacek in the kitchen. She's doing a lot of really fine crafted work there from an acting standpoint. And then as the tragedy unfolds and this character uh, really starts feeling the weight of everything that's going on in this movie, she's fantastic in each of those scenes too. So I don't really know what her quote unquote moment is because she is so lived in throughout this entire film. I think it's a really wonderful performance. Well, I'll tell you the Oscars use the moment of her um, with the gunshot coming down the stairs. So the Oscars used up where she was trying to get her kids to stay, and then it ended with her going like, like, oh my god, coming down the stairs. So I mean, that's what they used, and even that, like you said, all the moments are great. I think, um, if I remember correctly, um, I think they used the moment when she says, um, "I don't know what to do" to Frank, and she tells him when when she tells him that he pushed her, and that she doesn't want to call the cops. But, uh, just nitpicking. <laughs> I think it's, um, yeah, I, I totally agree with Brent, and I think it's a really, um, yeah, you, you cannot really pick one moment because it's such, such a real performance, so that you're really feeling that you're watching a real person there on the screen, and with all her, all her emotional baggage, and all her suffering, and all this tiny happiness that she has. So it's really, yeah, I think it's really just a fantastic performance. A really true supporting performance that really elevates the movie. Wait, legit, was I wrong there? I thought they used the performance of her coming down the stair, or the, the moment. Was that not it? I think, I think if I'm remembering correctly, they used uh, the one. I think the, I think that's actually on YouTube. I think you can actually watch Jennifer Connelly's win with the clips. And there's, oh. there's one, there's one, there's one YouTuber who posts all the, who posts the videos with the clips. And I think they used this one where she says, um, I don't know what to do. Interesting. If anyone's got that answer before, you know, we haven't found it by now, send it. I'd love to see it. No shit, good for you. Moving on to our final nominee this year, we have Kate Winslet, or in this category, Kate Winslet as Iris in Iris. This is her third of seven nominations, uh, previously being up for Sense of Sensibility and then Titanic. Um, going into this, she had nominations in supporting from the Golden Globes and the BAFTAs, but she won the LA Film Critics Association, so she had something there. Again, in Iris, Kate Winslet plays young Iris, and... To describe this, you kind of have to describe the movie. Iris is about a, is a story about a writer who gets uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, and Kate Winslet plays the younger version, and you kind of see her becoming the woman she uh, is destined to be, being spunky and spontaneous and a free spirit in a society in England, when it really kind of wasn't cool to do that. Um, so, Brandon, what do you think about Kate Winslet and Iris? Um, I think she's perfectly all right in Iris. Um, Iris is just a movie that I'm not particularly fond of overall. Um, and like we were saying with Gosford Park affecting our feelings on those performances, maybe it's affecting my um, feelings on Winslet. I don't really have anything um, negative to say about Winslet, but I think she she fits the role perfectly fine. I think she's well suited for it. Um but yeah, I don't really have all that much glowing stuff to say either. It's just kind of, it works for me, and that's about all I have right now. So I'm just going to throw it over to Chris. Well, I like, um, Joey, you you, um, you earlier mentioned uh, your the joke from the Oscars. I really also like what Whoopi Goldberg said about Iris when she said this is a movie that even Ingmar Bergman finds depressing. Yes, yes. Um, 
I also really like that joke. And because I have to say, I really, personally, I really don't find it that depressing. I mean, maybe it was because this whole Alzheimer topic was uh, relatively new at that point before it became such a popular disease in the best actors category. But um, I think the Kate Winslet is really lovely in this uh, in this movie. Um, she has uh, she plays this uh, free spirited character. I think she's very believable in this. I think in a way it's a little bit like an audition for her more, of course, much more famous um, free spirited character that she played later in Eternal Sunshine for the Spotless Mind. And I like that she's so straightforward in her scenes, so that, that she doesn't really overplay this aspect, even if the script sometimes too much pushes her in this direction. I mean, the script is, when it comes to her character, the script is very on the nose. I mean, I think her first scene is literally, um, uh, I think John is his name, yeah, John um, riding behind her and saying, I can't cut catch up with you. I mean, you can't make it more obvious than this, how this relationship works. But um, I think she, I think she sells this aspect of her performance that she's a very alive presence and brings a very different energy into this role. Um, I also like, for example, how she, when they talk in the bar and she talks about her lesbian friend, how she really is very straightforward in the scene and really doesn't try to overplay this or add any humor to this, but just really very direct and without any fuss about it. Um, what I would critique, crit criticize a little bit is I somehow don't really see her as a writer. I think that's maybe, sound maybe a little bit weird, but um, I just don't really feel that her character, the way she is, would write all these books. I have an easier time believing that Judy Dench is a writer than Kate Winslet. And I also think that the connection between Kate Winslet and Judy Dench is not as strong as the connection between Jim Broadbent and Hugh Bonneville, I think his name is. I mean, those two are uncanny. If somebody would tell me that this is the same actor in old age makeup, I probably would believe it. Um, but I think this difference in these character, I think that's more problematic for Kate Winslet because even, I don't know if this makes a lot of sense, but I have an easier time believing that Judy Dench's character used to be Kate Winslet's character than I have, than I can believe that Kate Winslet's character would turn into Judy Dench's character. I don't know if this makes any sense, but I just sense that the Kate Winslet's character seems a little bit more away from Judy Dench than the other way around. I think this makes it a little bit difficult for me. Even though her performance really helps Judy Dench's performance, but I think it sometimes struggles to stand on its own. I mean, as I said, the script really pushes her to be this free-spirited character that she wants to see his bedroom, that she talks about making love and stuff like this. And I really think she sells this, but I think it sometimes also is a little bit difficult for her. And I also want to say I really hate it for writing her as such a free-spirited character. They really give her this kind of confession scene at the end where she basically admits to sleeping with all these men and basically presents it as a fault of her because I really don't think that is a fault of her and I really think that somehow contradicts what she has been doing so far, but probably just nitpicking from my side. Yeah, so I, overall I think I really like her, even though if I have some criticism about this performance. I'm going to actually say that's not weird of you to bring up the whole, like, you could see her becoming Dench and not Dench being her because I actually have this here in a note form, um, exactly pretty much the way you just said. Um, I think I think Winslet is doing really good here. I don't find this movie to be super depressing, especially with what's you know the Oscars have seen before. So I'm not as much as I love that Whoopi Goldberg joke. I think Bergman has always presented something a little bit more depressing at the Oscars. Um, but I definitely will say for like a quote unquote quick 93 minute movie with this topic. Uh, Winslet is the highlight. I think she is um, really wonderful here. 
Um, I enjoy her. I think her part, her section of the movie, it almost reminds me of Julie and Julia in a way. Like we all know that Meryl Streep portion of that movie is the best part. I would say, I would honestly probably say Kate Winslet's portion of Iris is the best part. Um, it's just interesting. I'm more interested in the character, how she used to be more than what she turns out to be. Um, and yeah, I gotta say, out of the three nominations she has at this point, Titanic and Sense and Sensibility being the other two, I think this is the best of the three we have from her so far. So I like it. I'm not sure why. I don't know if it's the way it's written or directed or her performance, but for some reason, I'm just not all that interested in her section of, or her, her, her half of the Iris character. I don't know if it's, um, that she plays it so straightforward and she's so free spirited and, uh, living, you know, things very, um, on the nose or whatever you want to call it. But for some reason, I just don't find it all that interesting. Maybe that's just me and I feel like it's weighing against Winslet for me. But, um, yeah, I just, I just find the, the performance just, um, too, I don't want to say simple, but I just don't find it all that worth delving into. I don't know why. Maybe it's just me being weird. Does it also, too, you think maybe have something to do because you are a writer and this is a movie about a writer um, and kind of her process? That never really crossed my mind, but I think I, I didn't think of it at the time, but hearing Fritz uh, speak, I think I agree with you, Fritz. It doesn't feel like she would be the person to write these kinds of books. I much more believe that Judy Dench would, because I'm vaguely familiar with Iris Murdoch. I think I read one of her books way back in the day. And I think I do agree that Judy Dench seems more suited for the part than Winslet does. And I'm not sure if it's Winslet's performance or just the way the movie handles the character, but I don't entirely buy it. Like we talked about Jennifer Connelly sticking out in a beautiful mind. Here, Winslet actually stands out more to me in Iris. Yeah, I agree with you, Brendan. I also think, I personally also think the, the Judy Dench part of the movie is more interesting. I think for me, it's also because I have, I think Judy Dench and Jim Broadbent work better as a couple than Kate Winslet and Hugh Bonneville because I think the movie never really explains why she falls for him. And I really don't think that as these two characters, they really make much, much sense. I think when they are older, they fit very well together. But I think in the younger version, I really don't see them together. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you, actually. I had similar feelings while watching the movie. Well, to follow up with another question here to end out our supporting actress race, from our favorite Kentuckian, Justin Priest, Cameron Diaz looks set for an Oscar nomination for Vanilla Sky, with nominations for supporting actress from Golden Globe and SAG. Would you include her in this lineup? If so, who would you boot? I want to say right now, if we say, like, who would we boot, I think that's going to give away who our fifth spot would be, because usually we boot the fifth spot, so let's not answer that point. But I will say to start off with this, I've never seen Vanilla Sky. I remember when it came out, a lot of people hated this film, and I remember a lot of people just like not liking the movie. I've never, like, purposely avoided it. I just have never seen it, so I can't, I don't have an opinion on this one. Um, it's been ages, ages since I've seen that movie. Um, I don't remember Cameron Diaz really very well in it, but as I said, I have a whole line of Gosford Park women, um, lining up, um, to be included in this lineup, so I doubt that you, even if I would, uh, throw somebody out that uh, she would make it. I've seen Vanilla Sky, but it was years ago, and I honestly don't recall Diaz's performance. Uh, for some reason, Penelope Cruz is the one that stands out more in my mind. And what's interesting about her part is she played the same part in the original film. So um, 
maybe that's that little fact is why she stands out. But I honestly don't recall Diaz very much in Vanilla Sky. Maybe I should give that movie a, a revisit. I just, I just quickly want to say, when I think of um, other supporting actresses from the year, I don't know if anybody really noticed her, but in Iris, I think I really liked um, Penelope Wilton's performance. She was also then later in Downton Abbey. She played um, Iris's friend, whom they visit at the beach. And I think she also has this illness, and she dies later in the movie. Um, I don't. It's not a big role, but I really like her. I think it's a re- it's really touching performance. So this is another one that I really admire from this from this year. I don't think that she got any awards consideration for this. I mean, the supporting actress was obviously Kate Winslet, but um, I really I really find her scenes with Judy Dench really touching and really memorable. Um, I'm looking. Oh, I had to look her up really quick. If I'm gonna do like a quick supporting actress that I can think of from any of these movies nominated. It's going to be Shirley Henderson in Bridget Jones' Diary, who played Moaning Myrtle, who is Brandon's spirit animal, according to Instagram. I laughed really hard. I thought that was amazing. Um, I think she's really, really funny in Bridget Jones, but other than that, I can't think of anybody who I would have put in here right now. Maybe Liv Tyler from Lord of the Rings. I think Arwen was really good in the first movie. Yeah, yeah, she was memorable. I, I would also throw in um, Celia Weston from In the Bedroom. It's another ah. very small room, but I think she's really the kind of actress who excels at these kinds of small roles, and I think she really also does a great job of really building this character and build, establishing this uh, deep friendship with uh, his basic characters. I, yeah, I think she's just a great character actress who is really very under underrated, and I think she did really great work in that movie as well. Okay, your lead actresses of 2001 were Halle Berry in Monsters Ball, Judy Dench in Iris, Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge, Sissy Spacek in In the Bedroom, and Renee Zellweger in Bridget Jones' Diary. All right, let's kick it off with our winner for the year, Halle Berry, winning for Monsters Ball. This is, her uh, so far, her first and only win and nomination. Um, going into this, she was a bit of a frontrunner, you could say, because she takes SAG and the National Board of Review, and she's recognized with BAFTA and the Golden Globes. In Monsters Ball, Halle Berry plays Letitia Musgrove, the widow of a recently executed man who uh, begins a relationship with one of her husband's executioners. So, Fritz, how do you feel about Halle Berry and Monsters Ball? Mm, so, um, so, of course, it's really hard to separate her performance from the significance of her win, from this historic moment. Um, personally, um, uh, when I watched the Oscars that year, I was still a little bit younger than I'm now, and I really had no real knowledge about Halle Berry. I think I only knew her from the Flintstones, so I really don't think <laughs> I I had any expectations from her to win. I also hadn't seen the performance at that point yet, so it caught me a little bit by surprise. Um, of course, I saw it later on, and re-watching it for today... I was a little bit afraid because what I remembered mostly from her performance were these very loud, exaggerated moments, which I think, and of course her infamous make me feel good scene, I think it's hard to forget that when you watch it. Um, So I was a little bit worried that I wouldn't react positively to her work, but uh, seeing it again, I was really surprised just by how raw and overpowering her performance is. So... I think more than any other nominee in any other role that year, she really throws herself into that role and she really gives it everything. So her scenes of grief in the hospital, they are, or when she's at the side of the road with her son who has been hit by a car, she's so overwhelming in these moments that even if she's not a perfect actress and even if she, her performance does have flaws, I think they fit 
fit into this performance because she just gives it everything. And this is, I think, very overpowering and very powerful and hard to forget. Um, I think, even so, I think her quieter moments are better. So I really like these small moments that she has with Hank when she talks to him in the restaurant. Of course, she has the benefit of having this great closing scene, where she this wordless scene where she's just sitting beside him and you can see everything on her face. I think this is a fantastic scene and I think it's probably the best scene of her performance and I think that's probably what what's nailed her win because when you turn the movie off, that's what you remember. But um, there are things I'm not too keen on. As I said, I think it's in some ways a flawed performance. Um, she's not... It's not a... Maybe compared to some of her co-nominees, she's not a very polished actress, so she has um tendency to go a little bit overboard. It even so fits the role. Sometimes it's a little bit distracting. It's mostly her this scene that leads up to the make-me-feel-good moment when she's talking to uh, Billy Bob Thornton's character and she's drunk and she's grieving. It's powerful, but it sometimes is also a little bit too much. I like, for example, when she shows him the drawings and she hands it to him and then she immediately grabs them and takes them away again. This just feels very real, but you have a feeling that she's also a little bit um, too over-challenged at this moment by the director. and You have to see that maybe this is something that she maybe could have done again. So I think just a little bit too much at some points. Um, and also what I actually didn't remember, but what also bothers me a lot, it's a very passive role. So her character really doesn't do a lot in this movie or really doesn't do anything in this movie. So things just happen to her. So her character gets really thrown from one misery into the next misery and she has to cry and cry again and cry again because so many bad things are happening to her. It's overwhelming, but it's also kind of comes to the point where it feels a little bit repetitious. And um, yeah, I think that's what bothers me a lot, a, a little bit. I don't... At some point, I would even like maybe call it a white savior movie. I mean, at some point, she literally sits on the street and lost her house and the only person she can call is her ex-boyfriend with whom she at this point didn't want to have anything to do anymore, but he's the only one who will help her. So I think that's a little bit too much. I like the scene where she meets Hank's father. It really, she really sells this moment that you see that she is shocked, but also not totally surprised that she has probably experienced such moments before. Um, so I think she really, I think I have the feeling that she really threw herself into this role, that she really thought a lot about it. I think sometimes it's just a little bit too much. I think sometimes she could have maybe quieted down a bit, but overall I think it's, uh, it's a really memorable performance that really suffers, I think, from the infamous sex scene. So I don't know. Personally, I would, would have been okay if they had left it out. I really, I'm not so happy that they, sexualized her character so much. I mean, there's also the scene after the execution of her husband when she's sleeping in bed naked. So it's just, I don't know. I don't think it was really necessary to put her character in these kind of situations so strongly and show them so openly. But maybe this, maybe I'm just a prude. I don't know. But um, yeah, overall, I think there are some, some shortcomings in this performance, but I don't think they destroy the overall very powerful um, effect that she has. A European prude? Never. <laughs> yeah, us I know. It seems a little bit weird. Come on, man. Um, okay. I don't want to focus on this movie because I would say nine out of ten people would consider this movie a garbage fire of a movie. We all, for those nine out of ten, we know this movie sucks. Focusing on the performance, I am, I, I, 
here's the grief performance. One of the two grief performances, really, in this lineup. Um, and I think she sells it really well. Um, you know, I, I want to, I, I don't want to start, like, the opposition here from what Fritz was just saying, but I think everyone grieves totally differently. Um, some people may use a substance. Um, some people may turn to self-harm. Some people can, you know, would turn to sex even. And I think, I think we're getting that here with Letitia. Um, and I think Halle Berry definitely sells it. You know, uh, it, it's infamous by now that everyone knows that Hallie had to quote unquote ugly herself up for this role or ugly herself down, I should say. Um, and it's, you know, unfortunately, even with this win, she still doesn't really have a career. I mean, she works, but like, name another performance by Halle Berry that isn't Storm in this post this win that is like, oh, that's why we know Halle Berry. I don't think you can. Which is a real shame because you look at something like Frankie and Alice, and honestly, I know Frankie and Alice wasn't even nominated for Outside of the Golden Globe for 2010, but as if I'm looking at like 2010 as a whole, she wins for me in Frankie and Alice. They're fucking brilliant. Um, but with this, I think, I think she's giving us that grief that maybe we don't understand and we try to understand through her. I definitely do agree that this is uh, this eventually a, a white savior movie and there's a lot of issue with the film. Um, but I, I, she's selling me something and I like it. Yeah. So this is, um, a bit of a deja vu moment from last week. Cause if you had asked me about this movie and this performance before I rewatched it, I would have probably rolled my eyes and said, it's just, it's a terrible movie, very poorly handled from a direction standpoint. And the performance is just over the top and loud and it's just Oscar candy. But revisiting it, there is a lot going on in Halle Berry's performance um, that I don't think I gave full credit to last time I watched this movie. So if you think about it, in a way, this character has been grieving or at least beginning the mourning process for like 11 years. I'm pretty sure 11 years is the amount of time they say that her husband has been on death row. So she has been awaiting this moment for a long time. And um, I think it really weighs on her. And you see that in that early visiting scene with her and her son and her soon-to-be-executed husband. I think you really get a sense that she just really wants this to be over with. And I think she feels maybe a little guilty about that because it means the death of the man that she loves. But at the same time, she just can't do this anymore. And it really weighs on her and um she lashes out at her son a few times and i'm not condoning um what you could very easily call abuse but i think in a weird character way it kind of makes sense i think she's lashing out because she is so hurt herself and again not condoning that but it it makes sense if you really think about where this character is coming from and as far as the uh sexualizing of her um when it comes to the make me feel good scene, I, we don't know this for certain because we don't know what happened in these 11 years that her husband's been on death row. But I think it stands to reason that this is a woman who has not known sex or love for those 11 years. I think when she's with Hank, it, this very easily could be the first time she's had sex in a decade. 
um, assuming that she's been loyal, so to speak, to her husband who's in prison. So I think with the, the grief and the alcohol and finding this person who she feels she can be open with emotionally and physically, it sort of really comes to a, for lack of a better term, climax with Hank. And it all just kind of works for me. I didn't really feel as though the movie was sexualizing her, but it's using sex to develop her character a little more. I don't know if there's really a difference there, but it feels like it to me. Um, with the laying in bed naked thing, for some reason, that it just occurred to me while watching it that it was just really hot for some reason, that they're in the South and they're too poor to have air conditioning, so she was just sleeping in the nude. Did the movie need to show it? Probably not. But that was like the justification in my head for that moment. But um, I also agree with Fritz that ending scene on the porch at night with Hank after um, she realizes who he is and she goes back out and sits with him. And there's that moment of silence where you can see everything going on behind her eyes. I think that is a perfect punctuation mark for this performance. Um, this performance that has that can get very loud and big at times, and that in the end just shrinks down into this totally contained, controlled moment of peace. So I definitely respect this performance and this win more than I have in the past. So I'm glad I got to revisit this film. There it is. So uh, I just wanted to say, Joey, um totally agree with you that uh, watching this movie, it's a little bit, it's well, not a little bit, it's really shocking that um, Halle Berry really doesn't have a better career because seeing what she can do and how much she's willing to suffer for the fate of her characters, I think it's really impressive and I really, it's really unfortunate that, that somehow this is not better used. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brenton, I totally agree with you about uh, the beginning of the movie when she uh, goes to prison. I think she's also does that scene very well when you show her anger and how tired she is and how angry she is. Um, I think this works really good. Um, what you also mentioned, the scene with her son, I think that's really the one scene where I would say where she is really bad, in my opinion. So when she is hitting her son, I have the feeling that she has absolutely no idea what to do or what to do with her hands, that she is uncomfortable doing this scene and the way she delivers her lines, I, it, it, that's the one moment from her performance I really don't buy at all, where I have the feeling that she's really forced into this against her will. And But uh, I think, yeah, like you, I was also glad to revisit it and really see that it's actually much more powerful than I remembered. I think it's, it's the kind of performance, as time goes by, you tend to remember as a little bit maybe shrill and too much, but it's really, when you revisit it, you really see that there's a lot more going on. Yeah, I'm really. Have you guys seen Frankie and Alice? I know it's not easy to come by. Is that the split personality movie? Yeah, she was nominated for the Golden Globe for it, but that was all she got that year for. I think I saw it back when it came out, but I don't remember it uh, vividly. That was fantastic, and um, like I said, I can say it because she wasn't nominated, but she would have been my personal winner for that year. Um, I think it, you know. It, that that film gave her material about why she actually won this Academy Award, so you can find it, check it out, and if you've seen it um, and you're on Twitter following us, add us. Let us know what you think of it. Alright, well let's move into Judy Dench, nominated for Iris. This is her fourth of seven nominations. Uh, going into this, she doesn't really win anything, but she is recognized with the Golden Globes and SAG. In Iris, Judy Dench plays the older version of Iris Murdoch, and this movie tells the story of her uh, battle with Alzheimer's. So, uh, Joey, how do you feel about Judy Dench in Iris? 
my least favorite of Dench's performances of her nominations. I think, like I said, I don't want to broken record this, but I think for me, Winslet's section was definitely more interesting. Um, I had no interest in this character when, when she was played by Dench. So that's all I got to say about it, really. We're like we're just opposites with Winslet and Dench here. That's not exactly how I started with Winslet. Uh, Fritz, how do you feel? How do you feel about Dench? Um, taking the total opposite from Joey here. This is actually one of my favorite nominated performances from Judy Dench. Um, I think she's really great in this movie. I think it's obviously Oscar bait movie, but I don't mind this kind of Oscar bait movie. I think Oscar bait movies like A Beautiful Mind, where you have the where you have to admire everything about it, they tend to be rather off-putting to me, but I think Iris is the kind of Oscar bait movie that really focuses on the actors, and as an actress lover, I don't mind if, a, if an actress gets a great role and she nails it. And so I also slightly prefer her to Julie Christie, who later would also play a similar role and to much more critical acclaim. Um, I mean, it's easy to compare those two. I think they even have some, I mean... Um, uh, Julie Christie says, I think I may begin beginning to disappear. Julie Dench says, I feel like I'm sailing into darkness. So there are a lot of similarities between these two roles. But uh, what I like more about Julie Dench is that you get to know her character beside being a victim of this disease. So you see her a little bit more also as this sharp-minded woman at the beginning um, who's still very much there and who's still recognizes what happens to her and also wants to know what is happening to her and if she will be able to defeat it. And when she's told that she will not, she's even okay with it as as long as she knows. And I think she's really she really knows how to play these moments. She's not the kind of lovable actress. She always has a very uh, a sharp edge and I think this really serves this character very well. As I said earlier, she benefits from Winslet's work, which really li- kind of lies the foundation for her. But um, I think it also stands very much on its own. So um, she works very well with a Jim Broadband. I really like that scene when the doctor is at her and he asks her who the British, British prime minister is. And she doesn't know. And you don't know if she doesn't know it because of her illness or if she just doesn't know because she just doesn't care who the British prime minister is. And then she even says to him, somebody will know. And I think she really plays the scene very lightly. And it really works very well. And I really also think when she later shows the effects of her illness. I think that really has a very devastating effect because it really shows the contrast to the woman she used to be. Um, I don't know, when just saying this, uh, it's only the postman or when she's sitting outside at the beach with a friend and, and she's just sitting there and smiling like a little child and then dancing with uh, Penelope Wilton's character. I think these are very touching moments that she really sells, even though she's not this kind of emotional actress, at least for me. But I think it really works very well for this performance. And as I said, for me, it's one of uh, her best-nominated performances. Yeah, I'm much more interested in Judy Dench's Iris than Winslet's. Um, I find it a little more complex. Uh, maybe that has to do with uh, the way the character is presented in her elder years. But um, maybe it's also just because I find her Iris to be more um, cerebral, in a sense. Like... Like what Fritz was saying, I find her grasping with her illness very interesting. Uh, the way she's aware of it at times and not aware of it at others. And I think in a weird way, maybe this has to do with her character being a writer. I think she's deeply fascinated by it as well from an artistic standpoint. I think she's uh, sort of psychoanalyzing herself in like a literary standpoint. I'm not sure how to really word that, but 
I find her fascination with her condition fascinating. And I just find that there's more in this performance to really pick apart and um, analyze from different angles, uh, more so than the uh, the younger version. So um, this is, I think, a Judy Dench performance that gets overlooked a lot when it comes to her um, Oscar-nominated performances, but I think it's definitely worth uh, checking out if uh, listeners have not seen it, because I think she is doing some really interesting work, and she has some very tender moments here. And I think it's definitely worth um, worth visiting if uh, you haven't uh, checked this Judy Dench uh, box off. Our next nominee is Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge. This is her first of four nominations. And going into this, she wins the Golden Globe for Comedy Musical and the Empire Award. And she's nominated with SAG. In Moulin Rouge, Nicole Kidman plays Satine, a beautiful courtesan and nightclub singer who falls for a poet as she slowly dies of tuberculosis. So, um, Fritz, how do you feel about Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge? So, um, first of all, um, Moulin Rouge is really one of my favorite Best Picture nominees ever. I don't know if it's a controversial statement, but I really love this movie. I think it's really perfect. I think it's the kind of movie that could be a disaster um, with all this fast editing, cinematography, the way it's shot and the way it's done and realized but i think it really always succeeds so i really love this movie um nicole kidman is an actress i don't necessarily love but i really respect her for being such an adventurous actress so she does musicals she does civil war oscar bait movies she does stuff like birth and dog world she does adam sandler comedies so that she really it's impossible to pin down her type or a certain role for her and i think this works great for moulin rouge i think um yeah, I th- uh, to go right ahead, I think she's fantastic in this movie. Um, I think she and Ewan McGregor, who in my opinion was unbelievably robbed of a Best Actor nomination, do really great work to really humanize their story and to really find this emotional core. So it, it would be really easy for them to get lost in with all the craziness around them, but they really carry the story and they really make this love story work. Um, she, yeah, she, um, I think it's, probably the least complex character in this lineup, but uh, certainly from a technical perspective, in my opinion, probably the most difficult. So she really has a lot to do in this role. I mean, not only just the singing and dancing, but really just selling this character. And I think she does it really well. She's believable as this big diva. I mean, her entrance is as iconic as it can get, but she really is also a very girl-next-door type who is very friends with everybody around them. She's a great comedian in her first scenes with Ewan McGregor. She has all the drama that uh, for the ending, she really knows how to, she really knows how to make me cry when I watch the ending of this movie. Um, Yeah, for me, that's really an obviously great performance. I mean, she's obviously no Judy Garland or Liza Minnelli or Barbara Streisand, but I think her voice, her singing voice really fits this movie and the style of, of this film. She also is, I think, very warm and lovable here. I mean, she's an actress who can come across as very cold, but I think her satine is really a lovable character right from the start, even at the beginning. I think she really sells this character very quickly with the beginning when she, when it becomes very obvious very soon that she wants to be an actress. This could very, could be very eye-rolling for me. Just very, oh, okay, there's a deeper meaning to this. But I think, I think she really sells this right away. 
and she really makes her a very three-dimensional person right from the start, and she really hits off all the right notes for me. I haven't seen Moulin Rouge since it was in theaters in 2001, and I was nine years old when it came out. And so when I revisited it recently, it was the first time I had seen it since its initial release. And I remember being this little nine-year-old gay boy falling in love with everything Moulin Rouge. And of course, there was the pop culture of uh, Voulez-vous coucher avec moi, that whole song. And like, you know, I would, I would put my little disc man on and listen to that song and pretend I was eating little Kim in my mom's underwear and heels and like totally gay you could like it was insane um and so Mulan Rouge has always had a very special place in my heart and I've always remembered it very fondly that included the performances I think Ewan McGregor completely robbed 100% and I remember loving Michelle or Michelle Rodriguez Jesus Christ I remember loving Nicole Kidman in this movie and then I revisited it holy shit do she get lost in this entire film? Um, I mentioned it with what was her face with Red's um, Marine Stapleton that if you're going to be a part of such an epic, you need to stand out. And she drowned in every possible way. Um, I think her and you and McGregor make a very awkward couple like watching it now. Um, I don't buy it. Um, I don't think her singing is great. Um, I, I, I don't think her comedic timing is well. Um, I think she, she, she gets very lost in this big epic. Um, she doesn't play the quote unquote the Black Widow very convincing when she tells how uh, she needs to actually go to the Duke and she's actually protecting you in the Gargus character. And then I remember that, um, Roz Lerman had uh, mentioned, and this is funny that she's being brought up because we talked about it last week, that it, the role became between her and Courtney Love. And then I remember how great of an actress Courtney Love is and how great of a singer she is. And Boz had mentioned that while Nicole is fire, Courtney is ice, is his exact quote. And I can't help but think, what if? What could have been? Because Nicole Kidman drowns in this performance. Not very good. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of this one, and it's a little sad because I remember loving this movie so much. And I want to roll into this because we have actually have a, we have a, a question regarding Kidman. I have two here. One is from our other favorite German, um, Christoph M. at George, Judge Roy Snyder. Um, he starts off with. Would Nicole Kidman have had a shot at cracking the nominations with the others if she hadn't already been there for Moulin Rouge? Now, mind you, Kidman was nominated at the Globes in drama for the others. I think the others is a better performance from her, and I totally could have seen her um, cracking lead had Moulin Rouge not been here. Um, Fritz, what do you think? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, Moulin Rouge was obviously the bigger movie. It had the Best Picture nomination, and I think it was the combination of both movies that probably helped her uh, together with the buzz of her divorce from Tom Cruise, but maybe the, maybe the others would have been enough, but I'm not entirely sure. I um, 
prefer the others um, as a performance. It's more my speed. Um, it's uh, more the type of performance and even film that I tend to go for. Um, I don't know if she would have a better shot at getting nominated um, due to like the whole genre thing. I mean, it's totally possible, but um, I don't know if the others really had the Oscar um, momentum the way that Moulin Rouge did. But I would, I would love a world where Nicole Kidman received an Oscar nomination for the others. For sure. And really quick, um, from Catherine Short at Catherine 6240048, how do you think performances in musicals should be evaluated? Do you mostly judge them on dancing and singing ability? Um, I can only answer this as someone, I started in musicals. My first role was Lazar Wolf and Feather on the Roof. Musicals are very hard. It's very hard acting. You have to move and sing and hit your mark perfectly every single time. And therefore, I judge them as a whole. It's not just one thing. It's the entire performance, which is why, for me, I think Kidman fails because she doesn't hit every mark that, as someone who started on stage in musicals, I know what it takes and she does not do it, in my opinion. I think that's a very difficult question to answer. I think it really always depends on the kind of role. Of course, if I know the performer is singing herself or himself, then I take this into consideration. I mean, when we go to the Oscars, we have some performances that were dubbed. Um, then I'm mostly judging the acting. I think it also depends on how much singing there is. For example, Audrey Hepburn was dubbed in My Fair Lady, but I still think this is a great comedic uh, performance that I would have loved to have seen nominated, personally. I know this is also not a very popular opinion, but um, I thought she was great in that movie. So it really, for me, it really depends on the circumstances. But um, when I... Yeah, it really, when I see a, if, it depends really on how much singing there is. For example, if Anne Hathaway had been dubbed in Les Miserables, I mean, singing was all, she, her whole role was singing, then it probably would have lowered my appreciation, even if the acting is still top notch. So it really always depends on the kind of role I'm watching. I think it really depends on the film and the nature of the role. Because um, you have some very uh, traditional, I guess you could say musicals that are very, they need to be very precise uh, when it comes to the choreography and the singing and all that. Then you have some that are a little bit more rough around the edges by design. And if um, the performance matches that, I think it works. Moulin Rouge is basically everything all at once. It's uh, spectacular, spectacular, as they keep saying in the movie. And <laughs> Nicole Kidman, I, she works for me in this, in this performance. Um, she might not be the strongest vocalist of all time. Her choreography might not be the most intricate, but it works for what it is for me. Um, I think she does perfectly well in this, and I think she's well-suited for it. Kind of like the movie, she's also everything all at once. She's kind of in this like Madonna role, and then also touches of like Marilyn Monroe and Judy Garland, and basically all of the iconic musical divas of the past like 50 years are sort of just put in a blender and it came out as Nicole Kidman in this movie. And I think it works pretty well. It's also a very self-aware performance, I think. There's a lot of moments of slapstick in a way, like with like with the uh the femme fatale black widow component that you had mentioned earlier. There's a lot of humor and like old school Hollywood farce going on in those scenes. So if she doesn't feel believable in them, I think that's by design. That's how it's supposed to be, because this movie is very self-aware and yet it doesn't really take itself that seriously at times. It's just meant to be this entertaining joyride. 
And I think Nicole Kidman channels that pretty well. So um, overall, this is a musical performance that does work for me, given the nature of it and what is demanded of it. The funny thing is that I actually had um, more like the opposite reaction to Moulin Rouge than Joey, so I really didn't care for it much at the beginning and really didn't see the fuss. Um, but it's really the kind of movie I really came to love more and more when I watched it. And yeah, for me, um, so for me, Nicole Kidman is really, as I said, she's probably the least complex character, but for me, this is a true movie star performance. So uh, kind of like um, Julia Roberts the year before and Aaron Brockovich. I mean, they're obviously very different, but just performances where the actress not really disappears into the role but really uses everything she has and really makes the character fit to herself maybe also what classic actresses like Kaysen Hepburn or Betty Davis did and I think this really works very well if this if it really fits this personality of this actress and I think in this case it all comes together perfectly all right next we have Sissy Spacek nominated for In the Bedroom. This is her sixth of six nominations. And going into this, I would say she was probably the front runner because she wins the Golden Globe, the Critics' Choice, the Independent Spirit, the New York Film Critics, and the LA Film Critics. And she's recognized with SAG and the National Society of Film Critics. In In the Bedroom, Sissy Spacek plays Ruth Fowler, a mother grappling with the sudden death of her young adult son, Frank, played by uh, Nick Stahl. So, uh, Joey, how do you feel about Sissy Spacek in In the Bedroom? This whole movie fucks me up from beginning to the end, and it is all due to the performances, and Sissy Spacek is brilliant. Um, there is such a love that this mother has for her son. Nick Saul dies. 21 minutes into the film. I, I timed it this time revisiting this. And the entire first 21 minutes of, I mean, she's not in it for the entire thing, but that Sissy Spacek is on camera for, it's all about what is in the best interest for her son and his future. And the moment, and I just, I'm, it's the one fault this movie has, in my opinion, is not getting the reaction shot to about her son. And I think it was stupid on the director's point to not get it with how he set up this love for her, or from her, to get that, because the rest of the movie, you feel every ounce of pain. You feel every ounce of pain that this mother has for losing her kid. And it's weird, because now that I'm talking about it out loud, this is the second big, heavy, emotional... Um, performance that I mentioned when I was talking about Halle Berry, and I just realized both of these performances that are going head-to-head -head here this year and deal with a mom losing her son. And while I saw why Berry was reacting in her way, like that was her form of grief, what Spacek does, which is different, is definitely feeds it to us on a spoon in every moment. And I, and I, and I, and this is one too, I sop it up with a biscuit. Um, I'm, a, I, I'm emotionally distressed and emotionally drained after watching her in this. And it is brilliant. Chris, you're up. Um, so for me, this has always been a hard performance to judge because when I watch her, I'm always aware of 
how many awards she won for this performance and how many Best Actress awards simply were going her way. Because when I watched this movie, for me, this is Tom Wilkinson's movie from start to finish. I think he has the arc, he has the role, he has the, he ha I think he is everything in this movie. And it's just like Ewan McGregor, it really annoys me how he was treated that season. Yes, he got the Oscar nomination, but again, I mean, he wasn't even nominated for a Golden Globe. She won the Golden Globe. Um, I think, yeah, I think, and for me, this is really his movie. And I think this is probably also why it's easy to, despite all the, precursor awards why she lost the Oscar in the end because I think probably a lot of Academy members watching this movie, hearing about how many awards this is basically won for this and then you watch this and then she really actually has a very small role, she disappears in in the last quarter of the movie almost completely, um, it's a very quiet role so I think it's easy to understand why she lost I think it's the kind of performance you really need to watch a couple of times to really get because yes, it's a, yes it is a quiet role but you really get all the emotion that is inside her and everything that she has suppressed and that she is really ready to explode at any moment. And when this moment comes, of course, her famous plate smashing, I mean, when the scene comes up and Tom Wilkinson starts to talk to her and you really sense that she gets angry and angry, I'm always sitting there watching her and thinking, oh my God, Matt, stop talking. What are you doing? Because you sense at one point she's going to explode and then it won't be pretty. And I agree that she does also great work at the beginning and with the son. I like that she she has this love for her son, but this, it's still a complicated relationship. So obviously, I mean, they have the scene where in, at night where they are sitting across each other at the table and they are hardly talking to each other. Or she tries to connect to him and he resents her. And so you sense that it's not really the best relationship, but it feels very authentic. I like that she underplays so many moments. So personally, I'm also a very introvert person. So I, I, I get how she, how everything bottles up inside of her and how she hides all her emotions and how she slowly gets more and more frustrated. So I think that's really great work. I, I really like the scene with Celia Weston when they, when she mentions these dying families and you get this reaction. She tries to be friendly and not make a big deal out of it, but you sense how it really devastates her um yeah I, re I really like this performance i really think that the screenplay really screws her over i think it, there was really the potential i think for a much even greater performance i think it's really a shame that she just disappears i also hated that when this big confrontation scene between the two of them comes it suddenly turns into a okay let's blame ruth for everything game and the movie suddenly takes matt's side on everything and su suddenly she is the bad guy here I think that's really doesn't do her any favors. I like that she comes back for the last scene where you suddenly sense that she's actually a much more influential person than you maybe expected at first. I think this could have been a great Lady Macbeth kind of role, but I think really think the script lets her down too often. And if I'm being totally honest, I think it's the kind of performance that I think a lot of actresses her age could have played just as well. So I, th I think she's great in it, but uh, I think there's really a little bit of really special something missing for me. So I uh, agree with a lot of what you're saying. I think this is um, a marvelous performance from Sissy Spacek. Um, she's one of those actors who, even when it seems like she's not doing anything, she's really doing everything. Even in her moments um, when she's grieving and she's just watching TV by herself, 
in that little room, there's a story happening inside her. And I find that clear as day. Um, she also has a really interesting dynamic with almost every character in this movie. I, I really like her relationship with Marissa Tomei, both before and after the death of Frank. Um, the way she doesn't really buy that, um, their relationship is real. So she doesn't really take Tomei's character very seriously, no matter how much she's trying to get to know her. Um, and then the scene where, uh, Tomei comes to, the the music rehearsal or whatever it is and uh Ruth just completely shuts her down and doesn't want to hear any sort of apology or condolences whatsoever and basically pushes her out of the movie in a way I'm pretty sure that's if not the last time one of the last times we ever see that character and um yeah it's a very complex performance that has that big plate smashing moment but overall, it's a very low-key performance with a lot of fire burning underneath it. And uh, like Halle Berry's punctuation scene at the end of Monster's Ball, I love Sissy Spacex. After Tom Wilkinson's character returns home, she's waiting for him in bed, and they have this moment of pause. And then all of a sudden, it's like a, a light switch flips on in her mind, and I think she has this line like, Oh, what am I thinking? You must be hungry. Do you want coffee? And she jumps up completely aware, or at least has a pretty good idea of what has just happened. And she's going to go run off and get her husband something to eat. It's such an interesting, um, performance and a way of, um, letting all this stuff sink in for her. And, uh, something that the script kind of lets me down on is there is this really interesting moment toward the beginning of the movie with um, the men with these two boys on a boat and they catch a lobster that's pregnant. Like it has all the eggs on it. And mm-hmm. Tom Wilkinson has this line where he says something about don't cross the mothers or she could kill two men by herself at the same time. And for me that I had it had been so such a long time since I watched this movie and I'd forgotten exactly where it goes and I was like, oh, well, there's a really great foreshadow right there. And uh, it's going to translate to Sissy Spacek doing something really ballsy. But that never really happens. And that's no fault of Sissy Spacex. That's the screenplay and the director kind of, I don't know, leading the audience astray is what happened. Or I just read too deeply into it. But it felt like a moment that should have um, been reflected later on. But um, Sissy Spacek definitely does... Uh, Seems like she plays secondary to Tom Wilkinson for a lot of this. It does definitely seem like his movie for a huge portion of it. And I think that kind of makes sense for this marriage. Um, they're an older couple in, you know, New England, uh, America. And it makes sense to me that she would sort of have this backseat position while also pulling some strings from the front. Um, I think Fritz's observation that she could have been played as a Lady Macbeth type character is very astute. I think that would have been a very interesting take on this character, but you'd have to sort of rewrite it a little bit, but that'd be a very cool um, way of going about it. So I think Sissy Spacek does have some really wonderful moments here where a lot of her strengths are put on display. And a lot of that has to do with the quiet 
devastation of this character and the way she's able to say and do a lot and interact with her scene partners without really showing a whole lot. So I'm pretty, um, I admire this film quite, or this performance quite a bit. Yeah, I want to, I want to mention it. I don't want to get too ahead on this performance because we're still nine, nine years away from it. But I don't think you looked too much into the idea of Spacek really pulling the strings because we saw this much in, in a very subtle, which started off as a subtle performance, but ended up being very flashy with Jackie Weaver in Animal Kingdom. And I think it's the same concept of the mother is actually in charge. When Wilkinson comes back, she re- she knows the job is done. Therefore, now she's going to reward her man in that matter. Um, I think, as I've seen this over the years, I definitely, uh, I definitely have come to the conclusion that the whole plot of the revenge came from Spacek seeing him in the store, and therefore she got her man to do it. Because here's and here's where you're going with the, with the lobster thing. If she really wanted to, she could have ruined Wilkinson's life, therefore destroying two men at once. She had him do the dirty work. So I don't think you're off at all with that idea. Yeah, I, I agree. That it's a, it's a, I think it's a very interesting character to speculate about, but um, as Brandon also said, I think the script um, sometimes doesn't really do her the favors by actually giving her these scenes. Um, but I also agree with Brenton that uh, what she really does is powerful in the way that she really tells a story without doing much. The sitting in front of the TV or the scene that you mentioned where she slaps uh, Marisa to make characters. I mean, we don't really see her, we even don't see her face in this moment, but even so, we just see the back of her head. It's just, we still know what she's thinking at this moment and what is going through her. So I think this, this is really the powerful thing that comes from a performance and this little things that she adds, for example, when she talks to the priest and he tells her the story about this other mother who lost a child and had this vision and you, she just sits there and smokes and listens and you just get the feeling that she doesn't give a shit about what he's saying and that he doesn't has no idea what she is feeling. And I really like that. And I really like that she can be so authentically cruel for example, in when she ha- when Tom Wilkinson's character comes and basically says to her, "Oh, you look nice. You go back to school," and she is just, "Yeah, okay," or doesn't even say anything. It really feels very authentic when she acts like this. It doesn't feel actually. So this really, it, this really works very well. And one thing that I want uh, forgot earlier is what I really like about her is that she can act with her whole body and very naturally. So. At the beginning, I just get a kick out of actors who do things that are very ordinary. For ex- at the beginning, when she prepares this food, just the way she holds the salad, she cuts everything up, this just looks so authentic and she looks so comfortable in this kitchen. I think this is something that a lot of actors really are not very good at, this really f- feeling at home. I mean, this is a very far-stretched example, but uh, for example, um, I always think of Jennifer Jones in this case. I think Jennifer Jones was an actress who could act very well with her face, but who had absolutely no idea what to do with her hands most of the time. And I think Sissy Spacek is an actress who is really very comfortable in these kind of situations, and I really get a kick out of seeing something like this. I love that slap that you mentioned. Uh, If I remember correctly, she's sitting down, and Tomei is standing up when she does it, 
which completely took me by surprise. Because I believe she's sitting at her desk and Tomei's standing over her, and she just whacks her from her seated position. She doesn't even give Tomei the the courtesy of standing to slap her. She just does it from her seated position, and that is that's a badass move, honestly. Yeah, yeah she just slaps her and puts back on her, her ear, uh, ear hats and ignores her completely again. I love it. And I think, uh, Joey, I think your observation about how she might actually be secretly orchestrating this whole thing without letting anyone know that they're being manipulated, I think that's kind of what you were getting at. Mm. I think that's a very interesting way of looking at it. Maybe next time I watch this movie, I'll have to really uh, zero in on that and how she might actually be controlling everything without um, literally pulling strings, you know? So yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So our final nominee is Renee Zellweger, uh, nominated for Bridget Jones' Diary. This is her first of three uh, nominations as of right now. Next week, that might change. Uh, going into this, she doesn't win anything, but she is recognized with the Golden Globes, the BAFTAs, SAG, Critics' Choice, and the Empire Awards. So she was definitely on people's radar. And in Bridget Jones' Diary, she plays Bridget Jones, a woman looking for love. So, Fritz, how do you feel about Renee Zellweger? Um, I love her in this. I'm so happy that a performance like this um, is occasionally nominated for an Oscar. Um, what I find very interesting is, in my opinion, she's the only nominee who really has her own movie to herself. Um, as I said, I think Sissy has a smaller role than Tom Wilkinson. Um, Halle Berry has a more passive role than Billy Bob Thornton. Julie... Uh, Judy Dench is part of an ensemble, and Nicole is always told through flashbacks by Ewan McGregor. But she's really the central character of her movie. She has uh, the man in her life or her supporting cast. Um, she has her own voiceover. So this is really her movie from start to finish, and I think she really does a great job of creating this very lovable, funny, and unforgettable comedic character. Um, I don't I'm not in a position to judge how authentic her British accent is. For me, it sounds perfectly fine. It sounds She sounds British to me. And to be honest, I could listen to her talk in that accent all day. Um, I like how she... I mean, the script obviously wants us to love her, but it really takes a special actress to realize that. And I think she's really perfect for this role. Um, I like how she underplays many scenes, how you sense how she constantly fears to embarrass herself but somehow cannot stop herself from doing so um of course she has many moments i don't care how much how many times i see them i will always laugh i mean her singing i can't live without you that told tits pervert um, fitz herbert thing that always cracks me up um <laughs> When she has this speech at the end, when she says it's a loss for England that he goes, um, her scene at the fire station, there are so many thing things that I love about her in this. And I think, um, of course, it's, again, like Nicole Kidman, it's not a very deep role, but I think, again, dying is easy, comedy is hard, and she really sells this from start to finish. And for me, this is the perfect kind of comedic... Um, it's a, it's a kind of romantic fantasy, but she really brings reality to it. And for me, it's a perfect comedic performance. I want to kiss you. You literally say what I try to like say all the time. Dying is easy. Comedy is fucking hard. Take that, Deborah Winger. <laughs> Deborah Winger. No, but legit, you're not wrong there. And therefore, that's why I have respect for these comedic roles. 
Zellweger is perfect. I mean, I, I do know that the role was originally supposed to, it was offered to Tony Collette, who declined it because she was on Broadway at that time. And I, 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 I that's another one that I, I could think of. I was like, well, what if? But like, Zellweger's perfect for this role. Um, even though this ended up being a very messy trilogy in the end, she's hilarious. She's fun. I, like, I don't smoke anymore, but I could have totally seen myself getting a drink and chain smoking a pack of cigarettes with this character. And I wanted her to be my friend, and she was a mess, and I'm a mess, and like, I, I weirdly relate to her in, in ways, and I, I love this. I gotta say, this is probably my favorite of Zellweger's nominations. Um, I think it's, uh, it's wonderful. It's, it's never boring. It's never dull. Physical comedy is funny. The, her deliveries are funny. I mean, God, there, there's the scene alone with her hair getting all messed up in the drive out to the country and looking like she just got punched in the throat. And I mean, it's, it's, it's fucking hilarious. Yes, give me more. I mean, she gave us two more, but again, they ended up being really messy. But give me more of this, Bridget. I think this is a perfectly delightful performance. And I also just really enjoy this movie. It's just a really fun film. And Zellweger seems to be really living it up and making the most out of this character and uh, this character's um, situation and place in life. And I also can't speak to the authenticity of her British accent, but it works for me. Uh, maybe some Brits find it uh, horrible, but it just works for me, I guess. And I think she's hilarious. Um, I don't want to just echo what you guys said, but yeah, when she runs out into the snow in her underwear in the end, and we're like following her ass as she's running, I just find it so endearing. And she and the director just totally leaned into that moment and made it so heartwarming. And she just makes every scene that she's in so enjoyable. Like um, the scene where they're at that party and she has to just sort of make that speech and she has like no clue what to say. Uh, I think she's great um, when she shows up to that party um, in costume when she wasn't supposed to. Uh, I think that's delightful. I mean, I can just keep naming scenes where I think Renee Zellweger is really selling this character and showing why comedy and romantic comedies, to be more specific, ought to be taken seriously and why great performances can be turned out from them if they are written well and directed well and acted well. And I think Bridget Jones's diary is a great example of that. Um, moving on with questions, we have like 20 of them from Kristoff because, you know, everything's just got to be back in. Love you, Kristoff. Um, what Naomi Watts robbed of a nomination? This was an 01, so we're talking Mulholland Drive. I personally think Mulholland Drive is one of the most overrated movies I've ever seen in my life. Um, and I personally would not have nominated Naomi Watts for that. So I'm going to say no. So I'm a big fan of Mulholland Drive, and um, I think Naomi Watts probably would make my lineup. So I would say sure. Yeah. So I'm giving the same answer as always. It's been ages, ages since I saw that movie, but I remember that I like Naomi Watts very much. And I, in general, um, think she's a pretty great actress, even if sometimes she doesn't get the roles um, that show it. But... Um, Simply from memory, I would say yes, she should have been nominated. You know, I feel really teamed up against this episode, so... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, Alright, and then again, from Kristoff, I could have asked the last question regarding the Rob nomination of Nancy Watts, 
Um, about Isabelle Luper and Hilda Swinton as well, but as the piano teacher and the deep end were never anywhere near awards consideration, I have sticking myself to Watts. Now, it's not really a question, but I'm going to answer something to that. Now, there is someone deeming Isabelle Luper for the piano teacher who should have gotten a nomination. Um, what do you guys think? I'd agree with that. Um, I have not seen the Tilda Swinton film, but Isabelle Huppert is phenomenal in The Piano Teacher, and she would definitely make my lineup and probably be toward the top of it. So yeah, I think she definitely should have been nominated. She won Best Actress at Cannes, so um, that says something. Yeah, I'm basically saying the same as Brandon. Um, I did not see The Deep End. Again, it's been ages since I saw Isabelle Huppert, but I remember that she blew me away. So I suppose if I rewatch her, I would definitely put her at the top, uh, very close to the top of my ranking. And finally, from Lulu Del Rey, and I love this better handle, at Queer Nancy Pelosi. Um, not really an opinion, question, or something you have to answer on the podcast, but too bad we're doing it anyway. But I just noticed every single one of them, meaning the nominees this year, has won at least one Oscar in their career. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, looking them over really quick, you are correct. Um, how oh, wow. rare slash unique is that? I'm going to say that's pretty rare. No, I just want to say, I, I read that question on Twitter and I, I tried to think about it and I think it could be the, the only case that this happens. I mean, in the, only, in the older years, you had all these character actresses in supporting who were nominated maybe once or twice in their life and never got it so could easily be that this is the only time that this happened i would need yeah. to check it up but i was uh, to be honest i was too lazy <laughs> yeah I, ha I hadn't realized that like when you read the question i looked at my notes and i was like going through the lead actors like oh yeah they all have won an oscar that's true and then my mind went down to the supportings and i was like oh wow They've all also won Oscars. That's true. I didn't make that connection. So, yeah, that's a really cool thing. And I'm not sure if that's ever happened before, but that's really neat. And I would like to point out really quick, now that I'm looking at these notes, uh, outside of Benet, the two winners this year who actually won, this was their only nomination. So this was the only chance they had to win. Hmm. I mean, Renee had three, but she only won one. I mean, I guess this only won one, two. I, they all won at some point. You know what it is. Yeah. Um, alright. Time has come. Let's let's get to these rankings. Um, again, your supporting actress nominees this year were Maggie Smith and Helen Mirren in Gosford Park, Jennifer Connolly in A Beautiful Mind, uh, Kate Winslet in Iris, and Marissa Tomei in, um, in The Bedroom. My number five, I'm actually gonna give to Jennifer Connolly. Um, I gotta say, even after discussing, I think I would still personally put her in the lead. Um, I know if this movie came out today, she would probably be put in the lead, um, just the way campaigning works. So, I don't want to label this as a category fraud, as like, right up front, but I'm gonna say it's a 98% category fraud for me, and therefore Connolly has to go there. So, I agree with you. Um, Jennifer Connelly is also my number five. Um, as I said, she makes, for me, the most sense as the Oscar winner, but not as my personal winner. Um, I think, for me, it's not category fraud. I think, for me, it's just... I think she had the most to work with of all the nominees, but did not really use all the chances she had. And I think, in some parts, it was her performance was not as effective as it could have been. So I'm actually going to put Kate Winslet at fifth, 
I don't know what it is, but there's something about this performance that just doesn't really do anything for me. And um, I can I can point out something about the other four that actually do something for me. I don't know why, but Kate Winslet and Iris just uh, was just a boring performance for me. So I'm gonna put her at fifth. I'm gonna echo the boring performance, but I'm giving it to Helen Mirren here. I think this is um. Well, I don't think this is her worst nomination. I still would probably say that would have been The Man of King George. This is very one note. There's, I don't even think this should have been nominated. And I've said it before, I don't give an Oscar for someone who has one scene. That's exactly what she has. She has maybe a three-minute scene that really does something, but it's nowhere near Oscar-worthy, let alone win-worthy for me. So, Helen Mirren at four. So, my number four is Kate Winslet. Um, I think she's a breath of fresh air in Iris, and I think she, she has a lot of engaging moments and lovely moments. Um, I think, as I said, I have some trouble to see how her character developed into Judy Dench's character, and I really do not totally see her as a writer. So, just for me, the reason to put her at number four. I'm putting Jennifer Connolly at number four. I'm okay with her being in supporting, which is why I didn't disqualify her. Um, even though of the supporting nominees, she probably has the most screen time, and I understand why people have a problem with it, but I'm cool with it. But um, that being said, the the movie's not that, the performance is not that much of a standout for me. I think she does perfectly all right with what she's given, and um, for the most part, she's very secondary um, to the Russell Crowe character, um, but she has some moments that stand out to me, and she has some very great reactions. So um, Jennifer Connelly made it to number four. Well, for number three, I'm going to give it to Kate Winslet. I think, like I said, up until this point, her three nominations that we've talked about, this is the best of her three. Plus two, for me, her part of the movie is the most interesting. Um, I'm really into this character when it's her. And uh, yeah, I think it's worth top three, but I still would not give it the win. My number three is Maggie Smith. The funny thing is, if somebody would ask me what the best thing about Gosford Park is, I would probably say Maggie Smith. But as you see from my ranking, I give the, from a pure acting point of view, I give, give the edge to a co-star. I think she's very funny. She's very entertaining. She really makes the movie. She has wonderful comedic timing, but I just um, find the other two in this category a little bit more appealing to me. Maggie Smith is also my number three. I think she's hilarious in Gosford Park, and in many ways, she's a standout. She's a character that you remember fondly because she's so funny. But um, I agree, the, her co-star edges her out a little bit, as does Marissa Tomei. So Maggie Smith gets my number three for Gosford Park. So I have left Marissa Tomei and Maggie Smith. Um, this is uh, this was a hard one, but I also, while it was a hard one, there is a clear winner for me in the long run. Um, I'm giving the runner-up to Maggie Smith, and I'm rewarding Marissa Tomei. Um, Smith is picture pitch perfect in every comedic possible way, but Tomei fucks me up. Um, there is so much emotion that I... I feel dirty after watching this, and a lot of it does come from her, and I feel dirty because she just puts me to the ringer. Um, and therefore, I'm giving Marissa Tomei her second Oscar for me, and I do think this should have been her second one, so that's why I'm rewarding her. Uh, Fritz, what you got for us? 
So I still have Marisa Tomain in the bedroom and Helen Mirren in Gosford Park. I'm giving the runner-up to Helen Mirren and also give the win to Marisa Tomei. Um, Helen Mirren, f- yeah, <laughs> yay for Marisa. <laughs> Helen Mirren for me is a perfect a supporting actress. She totally fits into the storyline without stealing any scenes, but still being a center of attention until she gets her own character-specific moments. And I think she does great work. But I totally agree with you about Marisa Tomei. She breaks my heart into this movie. It's the most real performance. This for me, this is a real, a real character there on the screen, not just an, an acting performance. For me, she really becomes this person and this really she's so natural and she is so great at drama, at showing the desperation of this woman. It's really for me this is picture perfect and I had never any doubt about giving her my win. So I have uh, Marissa Tomei and Helen Mirren left, and I've been going back and forth on this because there's something I really admire about both of these. But for some reason, I'm feeling one a little bit more than the other in this moment. So I'm giving Marissa Tomei the runner-up spot, and I'm rewarding Helen Mirren for Gosford Park. Everything you guys said about Marissa Tomei is completely accurate. Um, She really delivers in this film and really adds to the tragedy of it and does everything she needs to do. Helen Mirren, though, I am so fascinated by this character and this performance and the many different layers to this and the duality to this. And um, I think there is so much more to this character than meets the eye. And for being in such a huge cast and only having maybe 10 minutes of screen time, she's able to really turn out something really complicated and so heartbreakingly beautiful. And um, I think it's a really great outing for Helen Mirren, and I really admire it. So today I'm rewarding Helen Mirren for Gosford Park. So your uh, lead actress nominees, as a reminder, were Halle Berry in Monsters Ball, Judy Dench in Iris, Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge, Sissy Spacek in In the Bedroom, and Renee Zellweger in Bridget Jones' Diary. And I'm going to give the number five spot to Judy Dench for Iris, I love Judy Dench, and there's some things I really like about this performance. But in this lineup, it was kind of hard for me to put her any higher because there's there's more that I admire about the other four. So Judy Dench, as great as she is in Iris, can only make my fifth spot. So Fritz, who's your number five? So my number five to two are actually very close to each other and was very hard for me to rank them. But uh, I agree with you and I also give Judy Dench my number five. As I said, for me, it's one of her best uh, nominated performances that she is number five is really only because uh, I think this is a very strong lineup with really five great performances and somebody has to be fifth. Judy Dench, worst performance from her, in my opinion, that's it. My number four is going to Renee Zellweger for Bridget Jones' Diary. Um, I love that a performance like this made it into a lead actress lineup, and I think Renee Zellweger is so fun, and she is living her best life here. But um, there's something else about the other three that just uh, edge her out for me, so Renee Zellweger makes my number four. So my number four is Oscar winner Halle Berry. Um, it's not... Because I don't like her performance. I, as I said, I think she has more lows than the others, but she also has, in my opinion, the most powerful moments of all the nominees. But, uh, I think it's mostly due to the passiveness of the role that she 
I mean, she suffers greatly, but I really wish that there was just a little bit more to this role, and that's why she's my number four, even though I think I have really newfound respect for this performance. Um, number four is Nicole Kidman. Um, horribly miscast in this film. Drowns in everything else around her. Um, can't hold her own, and not a good first nomination from her whatsoever. Uh, so Nicole Kidman gets number four. My number three is going to Halle Berry for Monsters Ball. Um, I gained more respect for this performance upon this most recent re- rewatch. She is doing some really interesting things here from a performance standpoint, and perhaps she's not as polished as a performer, especially in this role, but for this role, I think that actually makes sense in a way. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, to echo myself, there's something about the other two that just do more for me. So uh, Halle Berry gets my number three. So my number three is Sissy Spacek and In the Bedroom. I think it's a technically perfect performance. I mean, she obviously is a great actress and she does everything she can with this role. I think just think that the script lets her down and doesn't and prevents her from really going higher up in my ranking. Number three, I got to give it to Halle Berry. Um, for me... While I see the significance of this win, if you've listened to us from the beginning, uh, Brandon and I both agreed that Diana Ross should have, at least from 1970 up, should have been the first. Um, and that I'm not taking that away from her, but I just want to note that really quick. Regarding the performance in general, it's good, but I don't think it is better than who's left. So, Halle Berry, please. So I have Nicole Kidman and Sissy Spacek left, and I'm giving Nicole Kidman the runner-up spot and rewarding Sissy Spacek. Uh, Nicole Kidman, I think she does really well here in Moulin Rouge. I think she's spectacular, just like the film itself, and I think she works really well within the film. Um, all these pieces that shouldn't go together somehow do because of Baz Luhrmann and Catherine Martin and all the minds that came together to make this movie happen. So I really enjoy Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge, but Sissy Spacek uh, I find much more fascinating as a character. I think there's so much more to Ruth that interests me more as a viewer from like an intellectual standpoint. Um, and I think there's a whole lot going on there that does not quite meet the eye, especially on the first watch. And uh, like Christoph said, she's very technically precise. Uh, she's an actor who feels very natural in just about any role she's in. It often doesn't even feel like she's doing anything while she's also doing everything all at once. So um, Sissy Spacek gets my win for In the Bedroom. So I have left uh, Renée Zellweger in Bridget Jones' Diary and Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge. Um, probably the two least complex ca- uh, performances, but... Um where I think they're still very difficult to pull off. And I'm giving my runner-up to Winnie Zellweger and my win to Nicole Kidman. Um, as I said, num- my number five to two was very close, but my number one was also always very clear. Um, Renee is great. I think it's great that she got a nomination for this performance. Um, it's perfect comedy, but for me, Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge is everything. Um, I don't want to award her just because it's the most iconic performance here. I'm I mean, when you go by iconic in Best Actress, you can't get more iconic than Margot Channing or uh, Norma Desmond, and I'm still giving the win to Judy Holiday. but uh, I think in this case, this <laughs> iconic, yeah, I'm one of those. 
But in this case, I think this iconic status is backed up by an outstanding performance, and I really think she does everything she can in this role and does it fantastically. Hey, don't feel bad about having to say you're one of those. Brandon gave it to Ann Baxter, and I gave it to, uh, what's-her-face, her cage. I don't know, Paco. Yeah. So trust me, we're all, we're all not, quote-unquote, the norm for that category, all three of us. Um, okay, so I have left This is basically in the bedroom, and Renee Zellweger in Benjamin's Diary. Um, Renee Renee Zellweger is my runner-up. I am giving the win to Sissy Basic, which for me is the first time I'm awarding her, and I specifically knew this because I think this is her best nominated performance um, from Sissy. Uh, Renee, she's great. The, The comedy is perfect. It's I've got no complaints, but like Marissa Tomei, Sissy ruins me. And I think there's something I almost consider this character to be a villain because I do think she orchestrated it even though it was justice. Um there's something very very villainous about vigilante justice to me. Um even if it's not quote unquote evil the like an evil villainy. I don't even know if I'm making a point to this point. There's just something very villainous about this character, and I'm very attracted to it. So therefore, I am rewarding Casey Spacek and Marissa Tomei, both in the bedroom women. That is what I say. <laughs> so, per usual, Brandon, Fritz, were you shocked by any of my winners? No, not really. No, also I think less shocked than usually. <laughs> I have to say. Well, damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I think um, I think all, all winners make perfect sense. There's also not nothing I disagree with when it comes to the winners. I mean, we have I think for supporting actress we're very lined up, and for leading actress we have some differences. But I think at at the end I think we all, all agree that the perform most of the performances were great. Yeah, I will say for Fritz, I did not know who to expect with you. I didn't read um, 2001 if you had covered that year yet. I kind of avoided your blog for that because I wanted to be a surprise. Brandon, I truly knew. I called it a week ago when I texted you regarding Gosford Park. I'm like, it's going to be one of these ladies. And I just, I didn't know who you were going for for lead, but I knew it wasn't going to be Dutch, so it had to have been in the floor somewhere. But no big shocks. Did you have fun? I, I had a lot of fun. And again, thanks so much for having me. It was really, it was really absolutely fantastic. It's the first time I've ever done something like this. And with you guys, it's uh, amazing. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Do you have anything you want to uh, plug for uh, yourself, Chris? Uh, well, not really. I mean, if people enjoy a blog that's reg- that's updated regularly, maybe two times per year, then please um, follow me on my blog. Otherwise, um, not really. Um, you can also I'm also you can also follow me on Twitter. Um, mostly Oscar and political stuff. If you're into that, <laughs> I, I suppose you're into the Oscar stuff if you're listening to this, but. I also retweet political stuff, so it's at at Fritz and Oscars. Alrighty, so on the count of three, we're gonna give a big Auf Wiedersehen to everybody, but we're gonna do this the right way if we're gonna bring the German goodbye in here. Fritz, I don't know one, two, three, so you're gonna go one, two, three in German, and we're gonna do the big Auf Wiedersehen for everybody. So go ahead. Eins, zwei, drei. Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen, Wiedersehen, goodbye.